This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Welcome back to another episode of the Woodsman Podcast, where we'll talk everything Pennsylvania outdoors. If you enjoy deer hunting, fishing, trapping, or just being outside, this podcast is for you. Our goal is to showcase the vast opportunity that the Pennsylvania Woodsman can experience. We hope this inspires you to get out and enjoy God's creation in the Keystone State. Welcome back to another Woodsman podcast. The week you'll be hearing this, this will be August 20th. We are getting into the third week of August. That means we are ever so close to our archery opener. Now, For you special regs guys, you're even closer than us. You're a mere three weeks away. So get those bows tuned up and finalize your last little bit. Um, if you haven't finished your stand prep, if you haven't finished your preseason work, get it done now and let those places soak. Let them sit. For those of you that are statewide, we still got some time. Uh, we're trying to wrap up what we can, getting stands prepped, still have some uh, trail work to do, cut a couple shooting lanes. We're finishing up food plots. Um, so going back to our food plot discussion we had a few weeks back, um, I, I, I jumped the gun a bit, and, and we tried to get some food plots planted. It would have been, I think, July 31st. Uh, had availability to the drill and decided to pull the trigger. We had a rainfall that Thursday and picked the drill up, planted soybeans, peas, and oats mix in half of every food plot with the drill. And the other half was broadcasted brassicas. It was a four-way mix of different brassicas. It had tillage radish, two types of turnips, and a kale. And that was uh, that was broadcast and cold packed on the opposite side of the field. And immediately after we planted, we had a gorgeous rain on Sunday, and you know things were looking really, really good. Then we went for about a 10-day stretch of some severe severe hot weather some some ugly heat and a lot of sunshine and looking at the food plots earlier this week uh fantastic germination and establishment with what was drilled pretty spotty with what was broadcast and we were debating on whether or not that was thatch or what that was related to but it, it merely comes down to the fact that those small seeds that were broadcasted on top of the soil they were easily droughted out with those extreme, extreme conditions. But the good news is when you plant that early, we have a little bit of a grace period in which we can fill in those gaps. And I'm, I'm here to talk about this to recommend it to you. 
get out and scout your food plots. Don't plant them and walk away. Now, some of you are going to be planting two, three, four hours away wherever your cabin is or your, your hunting location that you go, and that's that's understandable. But if you have the ability to go to your place that you plant food plots, 10 days later, go back, look at them. How are they growing? Are the gaps filling in? Is there any spotty locations? What do you need to do to make that a powerhouse food plot? For us, we didn't have to do a thing to the oats, beans, and pea side yet. However, I I did go and take the remaining seed that I had left in brassicas, and I also purchased some more tillage radish and broadcasted the gaps in which did not come up. And it's working well so far because I, I completed that Monday night and Tuesday night, Wednesday, and Thursday were loaded with rain. And that's a blessing. Um, for those of you who you know might not have much experience beyond that one initial planting in brassicas, I have a lot of growers that I work with, uh, farmers I'm talking, that will plant tillage radish as a cover crop up until about the last week of September, and that's in southeast Pennsylvania mostly, into central Pennsylvania. Every now and then in our southeast region, you can get away with planting it the first week of October and getting good biomass, but generally that's too late. Um, Keep in mind these guys are doing it with a drill, but you can do the same with broadcasting. So, you know, you're going to be hearing this on August 20th. I would say you're cut off for filling in with tillage radish for most of the states, probably going to be around September 15th. So if you have to salvage a food plot, you know, you experienced something that I experienced, or maybe you're just getting a little bit late to the ball game. Maybe you don't want to spend the full-on money for a variety pack and something that's a little bit slower establishment. But tillage radish is something that grows easily. I mean, if it touches soil, it's it's probably going to grow as long as it gets a rainfall. And that's why we chose tillage radish to fill in those gaps. So I'm really optimistic that this next seeding that we had will fill in and do really well. I planted behind my house about a week after that, coming in really, really nice. And I have one more area that I hunt and I'd like to plant. But the problem is when you're talking about your locations and you start adding all the locations up that you have, uh, it just gets hard to get to some of these locations. Uh, I have a 10-acre piece that I like to hunt when I can, but it's an hour away. And it's a private piece that I have exclusively, and that's why I like it so much, and I can plant food plots. But in the business busyness of everyday life with family and work, it's just so hard to get down. But I'm trying to get out as soon as I can, if possible, to plant down there and roll with it. While we're on the topic of food plot salvage, you can also salvage your food plots with a small grain. And this is something that you can do very late into the season. In fact, last year, for those of you who planted last fall and experienced the major drought that we had, we had to salvage 100% of the food plots that we plant. And the way we did that was what I just described at first with tillage radish. But secondarily, we used the cereal grain. We used rye last year, but you could use wheat just the same. And we're broadcasting that in a layering effect. And, you know, I'm not... I'm not using anything original here. This is something that I've heard numerous other deer managers recommend, and it's really worked for us. Um, 
We, we will go in September 1st, give or take, you know, Labor Day weekend time frame. We'll go in and decide that we had peas, beans, and oats. I'm fully expecting that to be mowed to the ground early in the season, if not before the season in all reality, because we have a high number of deer. And while I planted a very high population of those plants, I still think that they're going to just annihilate them. And I want there to be appreciable food going into the season. So on that side of the field, we're going to take 100 pounds per acre of rye, probably rye or wheat, and broadcast that on top of the oats, beans, and peas side around Labor Day weekend. We're going to do the exact same thing about two to three weeks later and go 100 pounds per acre. And last year, we we did this method. Um, We actually were seeding September 15th, and we seeded the week leading up to opening day, which would have been, I want to say, you know, the 25th, 26th of September last year, we did a seeding. And as dry as it was in August and September, we did get some rain end of September and October, and we actually did really well with food plots. We had a, a good carpet of green rye and some, some tillage radish. You know, a little bit would, would survive here of clover and whatnot that we had mixed in with our, our mixes. But if we had not done that, we wouldn't have had appreciable food for the fall. So keep that in mind as you're going forward. If you experience a drought or some kind of goof up or you're just getting late, those are some great species to help start with a good food plot. So while we're on the food plots, um, food plots were a huge strategy for me in harvesting the biggest buck I've ever killed. And that's what this week's episode is about. We're going to be talking another big buck profile by yours truly. We're going to be talking about the deer I killed in 2020 with my bow that scored 170 inches Boone and Crockett. Now, I just cannot, I'm still on cloud nine for this deer and I really don't know where I'm going next after this. I mean, it's a once in a lifetime potentially story here in Pennsylvania. And uh, there was a lot of good takeaways. First of all, there was a lot of luck involved. But there was also a lot of hard work involved put in put into this deer. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. So if you've been listening to the Woodsman Podcast this year in 2021, you might have listened to our first episode. And our first episode was supposed to be all about spring gobbler hunting. <clears throat> and goof up on me, uh, the rookie that I was, we recorded the wrong or we uploaded the wrong episode we uploaded our audition with dan and that was a season recap with devon and i and what happened so if you listen to that podcast you're going to hear some of the stuff repeated in this podcast but if you haven't listened to that podcast this is going to be the profile of the deer i killed in 2020 so i'm going to take you back to where this started and that was in june of 2019 my wife and I purchased our house that had a mere 1.4 acres total. I was not buying this place for hunting. I just bought it because it was within my budget. It was within the location that I wanted. And it just had all the, the things that I was looking for when we were purchasing the house as a family. So we closed on our house in June of 2019. And as anybody who's gone through this process knows, it was quite the ordeal, getting everything squared away with painting and this project and that project and doing this and doing that. And it 
the 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 time quickly passed and it was it was fall now i'd been doing plenty of other hunting prep at my other spots that we hunt and watching a couple other deer that we knew were prospective for that year but i didn't do a thing behind my house and i really didn't have it on my radar so to give you an idea of what my place is like i live in the outskirts of a small town it is rural but there's a lot of houses there's ag mixed in to the north of me i have a rotated corn and soybean field fairly large for that matter then it's a lot of broken up brushy habitat mixed into blocks of houses and then every now and then you get hardwood ridges immediately in my yard so so my lot is 40 yards wide and it's like 130 140 yards long so real narrow skinny piece and the entire thing is uphill and I'm going to say it's a six or seven percent incline it's it's up a small ridge and the bottom half of these woodlots are mostly made up of like lowland ash, walnut, <clears throat> and and for those of you who have experienced the emerald ash borer, they're all dead. Um, I had to cut a lot of trees down that weren't going to fall on my house, hopefully, ahead of time when I bought the place and had a lot of tree cleanup. But anyway, with that, I got a lot of early succession regeneration we got a lot of briars and brambles and we do have some good herbaceous growth too there but it's mostly woody brows you know some sassafras that came up with that a couple of the ash trees that fell over they actually shot stump sprouts up so we've got some good low growing thick habitat there there is some invasives i'm trying to manage the ailanthus and, and some of the honeysuckle that's crept in over time but for the most part, it's not too bad. I've got Japanese stilt grass, and that stuff's nasty. By all means, if you can take it out of your place, do it. But as you go up the hill and get to the property line, now you're getting into Hardwood Ridge, and then it transitions to some oaks, some hickories, and it, it's a pretty open woods, and then it, it snakes back to um, more of the, more of the same of what I have. But it's a, it's a bottleneck. So my, my property sits basically uh, north and south, and the ridge is running east and west. And there's a, a narrow pinch point that leads into my little property, and it, it's pinched off by people's yards. And then you have this block of timber, and then the block of timber gets wider as you go to the east, and then it's a big block of bedding. You know, this this is an area you can't rifle hunt where I'm at. It's, it's a safety zone. You can archery hunt. So it's just, I, I noticed that there was deer in this general area. I mean, there's, there's, there's actually a, a substantial amount of deer overall in my neighborhood, and I saw plenty of deer behind my house as I was going through the year. But I just didn't take the time and I didn't really take it serious that I was going to see a mature deer that I wanted to harvest or, or wanted to pursue in 2019. So moving forward in October, I put a camera out. So I waited until the first week of the season. I might've had one or two sits under my belt, but opening week, I was like, you know what? I'm not hurting anything. I had one trail camera in my garage yet, and I thought, I'm going to stick it out back on a mock scrape and see what happens and see what comes in. And still kind of ignored it. I mean, I put it out there just to see what would happen. I pulled my camera on October 17th. I'm sorry. I pulled my camera on October 22nd. 
something like that it would have been. And I was going through the cards, so it was a two, three-week time frame. And clicking through, clicking through, a lot of doe, a lot of doe. And then I started to see some younger buck. And they were in daylight and some were at night. And it was really neat to see, but I still wasn't overly excited. And all of a sudden, on October 16th, there was this deer that just blew me away. It was a 140 to 150 type deer. He was a mainframe 10-pointer with a split brow on his right antler. And he just had that perfect, you know, symmetrical rack that everybody dreams of. And it was just after quitting time. I mean, quitting time that time of year was, what, quarter after 6, 6.30? And it was like 7, quarter after 7. There's this deer at this mock scrape. It's like, wow, that is impressive. I would absolutely shoot that deer. But I still wasn't overly excited. I'm thinking, um, it's in a neighborhood. It's at night. You know, what are the chances that this deer is going to be in daylight? Is what's going through my head as I'm looking at these pictures. Isn't the next set of pictures October 17th? And he's there at 8 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock in the morning. Then he was there in the evening at 6 o'clock in the evening. Now I'm getting excited. He was there the following week, some somewhere between the 22nd and the 25th. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to hunt this deer. I'm just, I, I, I only have my small piece. There doesn't look like there's any good trees. And I finally decided... It was uh, the following Sunday, I think it was the 27th. We went at, we went to church and came back, and it was pouring down rain and windy. And I finally decided I picked out a tree. It was actually a dead ash tree, but it was a recently dead ash tree. It was like two feet in diameter. The branches didn't look too bad. I was like, I'm going to risk this. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to risk it because it's on the edge, and I don't think it'll be too intrusive. So that Sunday after church, I went and I hung this tree stand. I snuck up real quiet. I started to put a couple of screw-in tree steps in this tree. And I adjusted the tree stand. And when I did, I shifted it and it clinked slightly off of the step. I was like, oh man, that is not good. I turned my shoulder and looked. And there is this deer at 30 yards, stands up out of his bed on my property and looks at me. I was sick. I was absolutely sick. I couldn't believe it. And he ran away out of my life. But I didn't let it deter me. I figured he's still there. I'm going to try. So I hunted him the next day on Monday. It would have been the 28th. And didn't see him. Didn't see a deer. Had to go to work. And I pretty much just was disgusted that I chased the deer out of there. And I didn't know if I'd see him again. Well, little did I know when I, the next time I pulled the card that he was there the morning of the 29th. The next morning at 9 o'clock in the morning while I was at work and he was also there at the 29th in the evening in daylight and I was a little bit disgusted with myself just not hunting this deer harder not trying sooner it just it was so rookie it was so lazy and I was disappointed with myself and the rest of the season went on and I, I didn't connect with this deer again and I pretty much gave up on it I was fortunate enough that year to harvest a five-and-a-half-year-old buck, and I know that because I had the, the tooth sent in and aged. <clears throat> a five-and-a-half-year-old deer in Lycoming County at my cabin. It was a beautiful nine-pointer, the, the biggest deer I'd killed with my rifle at that time. It was a great time, so I had my buck tag filled. So fast forward into late season, 
on December 27th after Christmas, I went for a doe hunt behind the house, and I saw 14 deer, and following a group of eight doe was this big buck. Um, didn't have a name for this deer, but it was this mainframe 11 pointer behind the house. So I knew he made it through. And then I pulled the camera later and he was there on Christmas day and middle of the day at like one thirty in the afternoon. Like, well, he made it through rifle season. Like this deer might be here next year. So uh, an immediate fire lit under me that year in January. Um, I, I just said to myself, I've got to do everything I possibly can on this little piece of property to try to hunt a deer like that because, he might put 20 inches on. He he could be a giant, and I'd love to put a deer like that on my wall. So going into 2020, I had, as I said earlier, I had a, a large amount of ash trees removed. So a big part of that was cleaning up ash trees, and not just necessarily because I needed to for homesake, but the area that they were all piled into was the area that I decided needed to be food plot. So again, with my lot, about a little less than half of it is my house in the yard, and then a little over half of it is all wooded. So right at the edge of the yard, one of the first things I did was I planted an annual screen. The annual screen had Egyptian wheat, sorghum, sorghum Sudan grass, and I think that's it. I planted that in mid-June, which was a little later than I wanted it to, but that's when I got everything cleaned up finally. And that ended up turning out to be an eight-foot screen, uh, eight-foot tall, I should say, and I planted it about four or five yards wide. And to me, that was going to be the biggest, most critical thing. If I'm going to have a mature deer come in to my woodlot in daylight hours, I did not want to have any possible chance that he could be spooked by seeing something that looked off in my yard or, you know, he looks down at the public road and sees somebody walking by at the minute that I'm trying to hunt him. I just didn't want to take that chance. So I had a complete annual screening surrounding the food plot separating my yard from this deer. So a mere seven to eight yards from my yard is where I had a small food plot. I mean, you can't even call it an acre's worth. It was like a a couple yards worth of food plot. But it was just, you know, brassicas, cereal, stuff like that. And I wasn't necessarily thinking that I'm going to draw this deer in there with this this green base, but I was hoping that I could channel deer movement with it. I was hoping I could channel doe movement passing through this property and hopefully could get a buck to follow. And it was the same general area that he had been the, the, the year prior. I thought it was possible that I could kill this deer. I really did. Um, so the next thing that I did, when I bought this house, uh, you know, every, I, don't, I don't know what it's like for everybody else, but you, you buy a house from somebody else and, you know, they always let this or that behind for you to clean up. And one of the things they left was, an old metal galvanized water trough, like a a cattle tank. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it. They'd used it for storage. And a light bulb went off to me. I said, you know, there is not a, a lick of water anywhere in this general area where these deer are laying. And I know they're laying behind my house. They're laying in the wood lot two lots over. They're laying in the other big lot three lots over. There's a lot of low-lying brush, and I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that deer need the water. They don't, and there's a lot of biologists that have proved that. 
But if they're bedding in a dry bedding area and they're funneling through and it just naturally happens to be on the progression that they have a water hole, they're going to use it if they feel secure. And I decided that I'm going to put this water hole in on the back side of this food plot. Now, normally I wouldn't put a water hole so close to the food plot, but the way I looked at it is, hey, I've got a half acre at most. Uh, I got to put it somewhere. So I separated it from the food plot. It was about 20 to 30 yards from the food plot on the main trail. And my theory was if a buck cruises through, he could go, he could get a drink of water and go to the mock scrape. He could see into the food plot or a portion of it and cruise through on that main trail that was above the food plot. So water hole was in. I dug that in by hand, filled it up. I got three lengths of garden hose and linked it all the way up from the house and filled it up. Actually, I think it was more than that. It was a lot of garden hose to make it that far. But anyway, I put, I put mock scrapes in at the the water hole, which was a a twenty five or twenty I'm sorry a twenty three yard shot from the tree stand that I had picked. I picked a maple tree out that was very close to the edge of the yard wood line. It was one of the first trees in, and I also in this time got to know my neighbors, and they allowed me to hunt on their wood lot. So theirs is a lot wider than mine, but it it connects to my property. So in total, I had about an acre and a half of woods that I could hunt. So I decided that I was going to have two tree stands. I had one on this bottom side, right at the edge of my yard. And I positioned that as an evening stand because it was close to food. It was close to that water hole, which I would have loved to have flip flopped it. But you know, hindsight's 2020. I did what I did on my property and it worked, but the food plot and the tree stand down low was an evening stand and then I positioned another stand on my neighbor's property on the opposite end so to the east on the ridge and I looked at that as a morning stand because his property was in the middle of the transition from that low ugly nasty brush you know ash timber to that hardwood timber and I could walk in the dark in that open hardwood timber to the ridge, which was a nice edge and transitioned into the the two bedding areas and catch deer cruising back and forth for the morning. And it was kind of a risky stand because you did have to walk somewhat into the middle of the woodlot. But I decided that if the time was right and I was following my cameras appropriately, I would just try to strike it when the iron was hot. The last thing I did was I used a cell camera. And while it sounds crazy to use a cell camera basically right behind your house, I did not want to be constantly running up and putting scent into that woodlot. Now, I know those deer are used to human scent. However, they're used to human scent in the yard and the areas they're normally used to it. I didn't want to take the chance of going up and pulling a camera and putting human scent down and that deer blowing out of there or having deer get you know, just overly nervous with that. So I had all my stands prepped. I had cleared trails walking up to them so I could walk in quiet. And I was ready to go. Now, keep in mind, I I did all this work. It was a lot of work of clearing by hand and hand everything I did. I didn't get any equipment other than a chainsaw. And it was a lot of sweat equity, but it was well worth it. And I had a camera out, so I, I put a camera out right when antlers started to develop and watched it all summer long, and I never saw a 
a deer to work with Mitch. I had one picture of a buck all summer long. Everything else was a couple doe groups here and there. No buck. And I was getting nervous. And gets to the opening week of archery season. I still don't have any deer behind and and let alone this deer that I ended up naming Goliath that year just because I'm not a creative person. So Goliath doesn't show up and I hunted opening night at the the main property that I hunt. Had a fantastic hunt, saw a lot of deer and was part of the track job for one of my uncle's best deer that he killed, a hundred and mid one fifties twelve pointer. It was a fantastic deer that we had three years worth of picture pictures. And maybe I can get him to tell that story sometime. But anyway, that would have been October 3rd. And I hadn't pulled the camera for a while behind my house. And I decided Sunday after church, I was going to slip up and pull the the card behind my house. Because I didn't have a cell camera there. I had a cell camera on the stand on the ridge. I didn't want to be walking into that ridge stand because that was intrusive. I pulled that card and lo and behold... 5.45 a.m. on October 4th, that morning, here's this giant buck. He came through, bumping a group of doe, harassing them, and he was a giant. I mean, he gained mass. He gained length. It, It was his beams almost touched in the middle. He had three stickers at his bases. I could tell that he was a a 13 scorable point deer. He was a giant. And I I just was in awe. My my mouth dropped open. I couldn't believe it all that time. So obviously this deer shifted wherever he ranged in his summertime. He must have shifted and and came back to this general area of my neighborhood. Either that or he just wasn't on my one camera and I understand that. But I just find it interesting that October 4th I got a picture of him and started to get pictures of him here and there throughout October. So now I'm going into overdrive. It's the only deer I'm thinking about for <laughs> all my days. And it's the only deer I really want to want to hunt at this point. So I'm starting to watch cameras exclusively. I'm utilizing this cell camera. And October 7th, in the middle of the night, I get another picture of the deer. I wasn't overly excited because it was the middle of the night, but I thought, you know what? When he was here last year, sometimes he was here in the day. I got to take that information. I'm going to roll with it. So October 8th, I tried an, uh, a morning hunt on the stand on the ridge. Figured this was less intrusive because deer were usually in my food plot in the dark, and I didn't want to chase them out in the dark, and I figured I could get to that ridge stand. So I did, and I did see some deer. I saw a small buck in a small doe group, and I ended up getting out of the stand right around 8 o'clock in the morning because the wind shifted and was blowing straight into the bedding area. So I got out, and it was daylight, so I went over and I sat at the the stand in my at the edge of my yard at my food plot thinking that you know I could sneak up if there was deer there, I would see him. Who knows, maybe he'd cruise through. So no sightings, nothing. And I wasn't overly surprised, but I had to try. You know, I wasn't going to kill him. If uh, I didn't try. So I went for the next uh, week and a half, two weeks. No pictures of the deer. You know, I'm exclusively using cell cameras. I had I had used two of them behind this house at this point. And I'm not seeing him. I'm not seeing any good buck. And I hunted my other place for 
one deer that was left that we knew about that we would consider a shooter. And that was it. I was starting to wonder, you know, was he going to show back up again? You know, what was this season going to entail? You know, that anticipation when you're hunting a mature buck and hunting in general, you know, you want to be out there, but you want to play your cards right. So came home from work on Monday, October 19th, and I was sitting on the couch with my son who was born in March of 2020. You know, I'm a happy dad now and I'm playing with him and get a text and look at 6:30 in the evening. Here he comes. He walks right across the the ridge stand behind my house and circles in and then comes down and gets a drink of water after dark. And I'm ecstatic. He's back October 19th. So I'm devising in my head, what am I going to do for this deer? How am I going to hunt him? Now keep in mind that week of the 19th to the 23rd, it was brutally hot for October. It was pushing 80 degrees during the day. I was soil testing for my farms in t-shirt and it was uh, it, it felt like late August, early September. It was brutally hot, and I wouldn't normally hunt in those situations, and I wasn't planning on it. So, still playing my cards, debating with my friends what I should do, what I should do. And fast forward to the 22nd, which was a Thursday. I decided my wife was away with my son, and I decided I was going to work longer because it was a beautiful day. I wanted to try to knock some of these farms out and get their soil testing done. And hopefully maybe buy myself some time that when the timing is right, I could go hunt this deer or, or any mature deer for that matter. So at quarter of five, I'm sorry, quarter of six that evening on the 22nd, I pulled into my driveway. And the one issue I had last year at my place is there was one section of my woods you could see from the county road. Other than that, I had it all well blocked. But the one section you could see, you could actually see right up to the water hole. So I pulled in my driveway, and when I looked up, there he is standing at the water at quarter of six in the evening. (laughs) I could have screamed. I pulled in the driveway, I snuck upstairs and looked out my back porch window, and I could just see his tines tingling. He was raking a tree, and... I'm just baffled that he's he's here. It's eighty. It's seventy five degrees, and he's out here in daylight on my on my my property. So having a conniption that I did, I started to go into panic mode. I gotta hunt this deer. I gotta hunt this deer. And I planned the morning of October twenty third, which was a Friday morning. Planned to get up and I was gonna hunt this deer. And I was trying to figure out how I was gonna hunt him. And I decided that as hot as it was, maybe he'd be going to water. I got to hunt close to the water hole somehow. And it was against my theory for the morning hunt. And I decided I was going to wait when it was gray light and I could see with my naked eye and see if there was anything in the area. And then I would slip up to this tree stand. Um, the, the tree stand was not very well hidden from, from the woods. Like you could see deer 
into sections of the woods where the tree stand was. Now, over to my east where the food plot was, that was well screened off. But walking up to the tree stand for the last 10 yards, I'm exposed. So I decided I was going to, in the early morning when it was just getting light out, I'd sneak up when I didn't see anything, quick climb up the tree stand and hunt him. And maybe he'd, you know, work his way back to bed and be getting a drink. Sure enough, I get dressed. I'm standing in my driveway, and the wind is blowing straight up the hill. Um, I don't even know if you'd say it was a, it was a light south wind, but uh, the thermal was at that point had already been pulling up the hill. It seemed, and I just kept checking the wind, check, kept checking, and I just decided I cannot go in here and risk this deer smelling me and boogering him out. I just can't do it. I stood in the driveway for probably ten minutes, just fighting with myself. Finally, I, I gave up and said, I'm not going to go. I can't risk it. Maybe tonight. Go in the house. I get, you know, undressed from my hunting clothing. And I go on my computer to do some work. And lo and behold, at quarter of seven, which is just before the first shooting light at that point, he's getting a drink of water. And... Of course, I'm a mess. I could have been hunting that deer. I could have been hunting that deer. But when I finally calmed down, I realized that it was going to be another 80-degree day. And he is getting a drink in a bedding area behind my house right before daylight. And I'm thinking, he's not going to bed far. He can't be bedding more than 200 yards from my property. Maybe he's even bedding on my property. I don't know at this point. But... Right then and there, I decided I've got to figure out how I'm going to hunt him, and we're going to we're going to let her rip. So I went to work that that morning, finished up my stuff early, came back home, and fortunately for me, it was uh, switching to like an east southeast wind, and it wasn't the perfect wind, but I decided I could probably give it a try, and. We'll see what happens. Climbed into the stand that night at 5 o'clock. A little bit before 5 o'clock, actually. 4.30. And I was in full gear mode. I, I sat down. I never, ever stood up from this tree stand. I had my bow in my hand from about quarter after 5 the rest of the night. And I did not move a muscle. I was just not going to let any chance that I would you know, booger this deer if he came in. At quarter of six, I had a group of five doe run in from the neighboring parcel and run on the main trail above me, which the main trail is about 30 yards from my tree stand, and ran into the wood thicket on my property. They never left my property on the east side. They came from the west and ran east, and they never left my property. They just stood in the brush there, and they stood there for about 15 to 20 minutes before they finally calmed down and you started to see some of these deer filtering back down towards my food plot. Two doe came right under the tree, were feeding, and the most leery doe finally relaxed and she didn't come into the food plot. She went back on the main trail, which led her right towards the water hole. And I was watching her very closely and when she got into my opening, right about 35 yards, the first opening that I had, she put the brakes on and locked eyes to the east. And I heard a stick crack. And I thought, that's got to be a buck. 
and I slowly turned my head to the left, and he, he snuck in to already 35 yards at this point, was on my property, closing the distance. So as you can imagine, my adrenaline went through the roof. My adrenaline had been going all day thinking about the chance that I've got a really good opportunity of seeing this deer and maybe I'd get to kill him. He walked on the main trail, going right towards the mock scrape and right towards the doe. It was, I had my 20-yard pin set and I decided that when he got in the first opening, I was not going to hesitate. I was going to shoot him. If he turned and came down to the water hole, I'd just stay at full draw and wait. So as he approached, I came to full draw, and he did exactly that. He turned, faced me, started walking right down to the water, and puts his head down starts to get a drink. Now at this point, he's angled down the hill, quartered towards me very, very hard. And I held and held and held. And what's cool about the way the water hole is on this hill if a deer wants to really get down and get a drink, eventually what they'll do is they'll turn their back hips and be more with the hill so they can get low enough to get a drink in this water. And that's exactly what he did. He, he turned his hips just enough that I could get both lungs. And the minute my pin hit his chest, my adrenaline soared through the roof. My, my bow arm shook so hard and... I didn't know if there's any possible way that I could make this shot, but that that's part of the reason why I switched years ago to shooting my back tension release and sort of a sort of a target setup, I guess you could call it. But I shoot my back tension release for hunting because when I'm under pressure, it's the it's the release that I shoot the most accurate under pressure. And I just let the pin float, bounce, whatever you want to call it, over top of its vitals and pulled through the shot. And when the bow went off, it hit perfectly where I wanted it. It was exactly where I was looking. Uh, just behind his front shoulder, the deer was quartered to, towards me slightly, but it was in the vital V and blew through him. He jumped straight up, weird around, went in the main trail, and actually veered off the main trail and went through some major brush crashing and everything and at this point what he's trying to do he's actually trying to go uphill into the thicket and when he got to an opening right at my property line <clears throat> he stopped and I thought when he stopped I thought he's not going to make it off of my property he's going to fall right there and sure enough he did I uh, in the somewhere in the process I stood up and I'm, I'm watching and I'm talking and he, he actually started to fall backwards and he actually got up on his hind legs and fell straight down the hill over his back and landed on his back down the hill. And the, the tears just flowed down my eyes. I was just so excited. All that hard work that I had put in for this deer, it came together. It was exactly what I had envisioned happening. It was one of the first times where I envisioned a deer and something to work a way it did, and it actually worked that way. I feel like every time you devise these ideas, it never goes to script, especially when you're hunting big deer. And it, it just, it was a pure elation that he just fell over dead right in front of me. On my property, my half acres of half acre of woods that he didn't even make it off of, he, he ran 30 yards across not even 25 to 30 yards, stopped and fell over. 
So that's a wrap up of the the biggest buck that I've ever killed. Pure elation. The deer grossed 170 inches. The night I killed him, I green scored him at 174 and two eights. And yeah, it's my own deer. I'm always a little bit generous on my own deer. So I, I knew there was a chance it was a little high and I had it scored for, uh, scored by a friend of mine later in January and he got 170 inches on the nose. The deer weighed 205 pounds field dressed. Um, was really, really fun to get in the back of my pickup by myself, but somehow I managed. But one of the coolest things was dragging that deer down into the food plot, surrounded by that annual screening, and getting my picture taken with my son. Uh, My wife came out, and, I mean, she knew how elated I was. It was almost the pinnacle of my archery hunting career. Maybe it is the pinnacle of my archery hunting career. But... She shared that moment with me. I got to get some memorable photos with my son, all surrounded in this little piece that I bought that was not even intentionally for hunting, but all this hard work that I had invested into with some strategy, um, it all paid into to luck, to some luck there. And what I think is really, really cool about this whole story is I do believe there's some good takeaways. The first takeaway that I'd like to share is the two years of pictures that I had of this deer. Now, yes, I I got extremely lucky. I bought a place that had a giant in the neighborhood. I had no idea this deer was here. I just happened to find it on a trail camera in front of a mock scrape the year I bought the house with nothing into it. But all the information that I had, I had to utilize to my advantage. And I knew that that deer was showing up in mid-October in daylight hours. He might not do that the following year, but I had to try and bank on it that he might. So everything that I did, I set up for mid-October and and really paid attention to those pictures. When I got the first picture of him in 2019, as I said, it was October 16th. The night I killed him in 2020 was October 23rd. And I had his picture for the first time in 2020 on October 4th. And the next time was October 19th. So it was really eerie. It's crazy how similar it was from year to year. But I've noticed that as a pattern with a lot of these mature deer. And I think listening to some of the other Big Buck Chronicle profiles that we've heard, a lot of these people that have done this year in and year out have seen those trends you know, Cole shared with us that you know his his brother killed a deer that they set a stand up bec- specifically for one buck that did this one thing on an annual basis around this time of year. When these deer get into that four, five, six year old age class, if you have that pleasure of getting his- historical information, you sometimes will find these trends. If everything else stays constant in the neighborhood, food, hunting pressure everything along those lines, it, it just, it's amazing how consistently you'll find that. I've, it's not the first year I've experienced that with. So the other thing was, this was the second time I hunted this deer. The first time I went in, it was opening week on, I think I said the 8th, the 7th or the 8th, I believe it was the 8th. 
and did not have luck, and I waited back and watched my cameras until he came back in again. Now, I could have went out and hunted him based on that data I had from the year before and, you know, tried to tried to piece it together that way, but I decided I didn't want to risk putting scent out and pressuring the neighborhood when it wasn't necessary. Not necessarily that I was going to pressure him out, but the doe groups that were in my area had a clockwork pattern. They would go through in the morning one way and go out the other way in the evening. They were going into my food plot in the water hole on a pretty consistent basis in the evening. What I didn't want to happen was alert them and push them just after dark because I was afraid if they were on alert and they were doing that same daily pattern by my overhunted, you know, my own my own dumb overhunted pressure, then maybe he wasn't going to come in daylight. And second time in, I was able to kill him. And patience and stand location. As I said, the one on the ridge is a risky location, but I think it's one that we use to, to pounce. I mean, I only hunted it one time and I probably wouldn't have went up there again until I had another reason to whether it was picture related or a cold front related or something to try to keep those sits to a minimum and the location at my at my house near the food plot is right at the edge Uh, I can slip in and slip out and be pretty undetectable water and food um, I by no means will not say that my f- water hole and my food plot that I put in are the reason I killed that deer because that's what was drawing that deer in from so far. By no means. The the deer associated the area that I live as security and home. And that's all out of my control. The, he, he felt secure to bed there during daylight hours and moved during daylight hours in that neighborhood. And that's the stuff on my neighboring properties that was out of control, out of my control. But was in my favor. But what I do believe is the attraction that I put out on my small property channeled the movement in the afternoon especially to allow for a bow shot on a small property. I do believe that deer were filtering through my property, would stop, grab a bite to eat, and grab a grab a drink and then move out to the larger ag fields that were to the north and to the west of my my place. Water is something that is overlooked often. You know, deer don't need water. They get a lot of water from the green food that they eat. But if they're in a dry bedding area with no water around, they're going to go to it if it's in a in a path of least resistance and they feel secure going there. And I feel that that's been something that's huge for myself behind the house and some of the other places that we're putting water holes in and that's a whole other podcast in and of itself but that was a a big part the last thing that I think was interesting it goes against the normal rule for mine I normally don't hunt in extreme high heat events traditionally for me I feel like as though I don't see as good of deer movement I don't feel that I'm seeing mature deer movement, and I think cameras would probably correlate to that same sighting. But I trumped this instance and went in with what I had as far as information. I knew the deer was there. I had camera pictures of him. I knew he was bedding right there. I had to trump it. I had to throw that out the window because you got to hunt when they're there. And 
I think anybody utilizing your trail cameras for, you know, hunting strategy, you got to use that in your mind. I mean, if you're pulling your cards a week, you know, weekend by weekend, and you find that the beginning of last week, a deer you were after was there two days and two, three days in a row, I don't know that you can be banking on that pattern that following weekend. And I would be argued to say you can't. I think you missed it. And that's where those cell phone cameras come into play, and it really helps you with that real-time information and making those quick decisions. You'd probably kill more deer if you had that information. Now, cell camera isn't going to be working for everybody, and some people don't want to use them. There's a lot of controversy of whether or not they're ethical. I think they are, but if you don't want to use them, I respect that. But I think it goes back to then your regular pull-your-card type trail camera strategy goes back to that historical data you can use those and collect information and hopefully you'll get lucky enough to pull a card and find a pattern on a deer and kill them it happens it's just not as consistent thanks again for tuning in this week this was a very special story and i'm really glad i got to share it with you guys i hope that you guys can experience something like this in your lifetime it really is life changing as far as archery hunting I've said it before, I'll say it again, there are more important things out there, guys, than deer and hunting. Um, as As painful as it is for me to say, God, family is way more important. And I'm going to do my best to keep that my priority. Uh, I know I struggle with it often, but, you know, this was such a blessing hunt and I'm so glad I got to share it with you. And I hope that it's, uh, hope it's something you can take away from. We're going to continue to do more of these stories, Lord willing, and we're going to have a lot of whitetail strategy going in the rest of this fall. So stay tuned, and until next time, keep working hard, keep at it. We'll see you.